0: All right, so we are continuing um, in this uh, series of Man and His Faith, which has been already pretty challenging for me um, and has been pointed in a bunch of different, uh, just in a bunch of different ways. And so it may be that you're struggling and wrestling with some things that is by design. I want to encourage you. Um, It's uh, not something that you need to be overwhelmed where you feel like you got to get all this worked out right away. The reason we are dealing with this in Men's Roundtable is because what we tried to do is look at the Scriptures and get a good idea of what some of the things that the Scriptures say that aren't necessarily distinctive for men when it comes to living out a faith relationship with God, but are certainly matters of emphasis for us. And so, this week, uh, we're going to look at the subject of anger, and, um, and I think it's pretty obvious if you just look culturally at the destructive capacity of male anger. If you um, just gauge contemporary statistics, depending on how you measure, somewhere um, north of 80% of all violent crimes that are committed are committed by men. Um, we are disproportionately angry. We are disproportionately prone to outbursts of violent anger in particular. And um, when you see that kind of evidence in the culture at large, and then you just think about it in your own heart, it may be that you think, well, i don't I don't feel like I'm that prone to that. And it and it may be that this is not a big a struggle for you, all right? So, we all come down in different places, but this has been my experience, is that there are a lot of men who think they aren't angry, but who actually are angry. And, um, and hopefully, we're going to get clarity at least about where we are as we go through this, and hopefully for you, there'll be a, a moment where you have some heightened self-awareness that'll enable you to know how you need to relate to God and how you need to better relate to other people and steward some of that energy that God has given to you. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, in your notes, we have this text that is um, given by the apostle Paul to Timothy, where he's speaking to men in the church, and, and he gives this general direction for how men and women ought to handle themselves. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says this, In every place of worship, so wherever the church is gathered, right, I want men to pray with holy hands, lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. The the language there is not being quarrelsome, Um, not being, as my dad used to say to me, boy, why are you so contrary? And he would always say it in that way, contrary, you again everything, right? Why is that? Well, there is this bent that Paul's recognizing here when he wants to summarize how men ought to think. There's a distinctive, he says, when men come to worship, there is a temptation towards men, towards anger and being quarrelsome. It's singled out even later on when Paul's talking about qualifications for church leaders. He talks about the fact that they they can't be quarrelsome. They can't be prone to violence, can't be angry. And so there's something that Paul feels is significant enough that he singles it out. Now, when he speaks about women in verse 9, there's some gender distinctiveness here. He says, I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by the wearing of gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Now, here's what Paul is saying. He's not saying that every woman is vain. But he is saying that there's something, and we do believe this as a church, we recognize that God created us distinctively, male and female, that together we image uh, and mirror the image of God in a way that's complete, but there is some distinctiveness in how we do that, and there is a desire to be delighted in that we talk about with our women that created, to be delighted in, to be pursued, to be loved and delighted in in that way, and when that gets corrupted, it can form um, itself into a desire to draw attention, to gather attention, to leverage her beauty and her sexuality in order to gain that kind of attention and put herself in the center. But for men, we see that the parallel to that is this issue of anger and controversy. And I would just say to you that it's true of every culture. Um, It's true of, in my opinion, it's true of every personality And so just as in week one when Matt was talking about the temptation to pride and he was talking about the fact that when he was younger, he thought only loud people are proud. But the reality is that pride knows no boundaries and no distinctions of personality. It just manifests itself differently in different personalities. And I would tell you that anger is the same way. And so when we think about it, I've got a slide for you that I just want you to think about that hopefully will be clarifying. I want you to think about a continuum, again, for the point of self-awareness, is on the side of seething or explosive. How does anger manifest itself in your life when you deal with it? So before we dig into it and we really try to understand it, I want you to stop and I want you to think and give some attention to yourself about which end of the continuum do you normally live on? Is anger just kind of a slow simmer for you? Like when you cook your grits, right? I know all of you aren't from the South, but if you cook grits the way they're supposed to be cooked, it takes you know, about 20 minutes or so, 18 to 23 minutes. Um, you cook them slow, you put whatever you want in there, you get them to a rolling boil, and then you just turn the heat down about as low as you can, and you just let them just simmer. It's just a slow gurgle. And it's not real disruptive. It's not something you notice, that you hear, but there it is. It's always just going on, a slow simmer. It's a crock pot kind of anger, right? If you're in the kitchen using cooking terminology. Not a a raging inferno, not not a lot of heat being given off that everybody notices it, that it's a real disruptive thing, but it's just kind of always going there. There are men who are dealing with anger that's like that. They're just kind of constantly contrary, quarrelsome. It's just a subtext of their lives. And they wear you down, and the people who have to deal with them all the time feel that. And it doesn't feel like abuse, but it's very real, and it's super destructive. And especially over the long term in a family and in relationships with people that you're close to, it's toxic and so that's one end of the continuum is this idea of being seething. The other end of the continuum is normally it's, it's easy to identify the man who's explosive. But I think the thing that you got to determine in your heart and in your mind is, do I simmer or do I explode? Which one is it? All right? So there's the first thing. Second thing I want you to make sure that you think about is just identifying this idea. It's the language that we use around here at the church on our staff where we have to distinguish... What's the difference um, in, a, in a situation that you're encountering? Is it a problem to be solved or is it a tension to be managed? And what we find a lot of times is that we're trying to solve a problem and we're putting a lot of effort towards a, thinking that something is a problem that we're going to solve. We're going to box it up. We're going to put it away and we're going to make it go away. When in reality, it's just an ongoing tension that we have to manage. And this is what I would say to you. Is that dealing with the issue of anger is not so much a problem to be solved as it is a tension to be managed. Because in and of itself, anger is not a sin in and of itself. Anger should be a part of our lives. God is angry. In fact, if you go do some word searches on anger in the Scriptures, what you'll find out is that the person the Bible talks most about being angry is God himself. Scripture says God is angry with the wicked all day, every day. So there is an orientation. God looks on injustice. He looks on what is wrong. He has a response, and he has a settled opposition to that. So he looks at what's wrong. He sees how it's out of alignment. He has a response within himself, and he has settled opposition to it. So anger in and of itself is not a bad thing. God's angry. The question is, how do you manage anger? How do you deal with it? Why are you angry? And how does anger express itself in your life? And in order to help us kind of explore some of that, what I want to do is I want to just take you to a couple of passages of Scripture. So we're going to look at two angry men and their legacies, which are just very, very different from one another. So we're going to take two Old Testament stories. The first one is the story of Cain, which is familiar to a lot of you. Even if you haven't been in the church, you've probably heard this story before. story of Cain and Abel. And then the second one is one that you probably haven't heard. Um, and it's the story of Phineas. And um, they both give us a good good idea of this idea of anger and its legacy in our lives. So we're going to find ourselves, hopefully, in these two stories. First of all, the story of Cain. And we're just going to pick up in chapter 4, in the second half of verse 4. Now, the Lord accepted Abel and his gift. So here's what's happened. Cain and Abel have both brought offerings to the Lord. They both make a sacrifice to him. And God accepts Abel's gift. Verse 5, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. And then Cain became very angry, and he looked dejected. He was downcast. His countenance was fallen. Verse 6, why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Let's stop right there and just think about this text for a little while. Okay, so here's what's happening with Cain. And I want to encourage you, a lot of times when we approach the text of Scripture, the reason Scripture gets really confusing to us is because we try to force it to answer questions that it's not actually written to answer. And we get hung up and we miss the point of the text itself. One of the questions is That for me, when I used to read this story, that I would try to ask of the text is, why did God accept Abel's gift and not Cain's gift? So that's the thing out of the gate. Here's what I want to submit to you. Part of the reason that we want to do that is because we're good Americans and we want everything to be fair. And we feel like any time a judgment is made, that whoever's making that judgment needs to justify themselves to us, right? We just kind of feel that way. And so when we look at that text through our cultural lenses, through the glasses of our culture, that's what jumps out to us. And we get stuck around, I wonder why God was, you know, didn't accept um, Cain's sacrifice. Was it because it was grain and not a lamb or was it the condition of his heart? Here's what we can tell you. The original audience might have had a real good idea of that. I don't think we know. I've heard lots of preachers make a big deal about the fact because it wasn't you know, a blood sacrifice, but the reality is there were all types of offerings that were brought to the Lord in the temple that were offered up as a sacrifice, both grain and blood. We don't really know why, and that isn't the point, and it's not the point of the story. If it was the point of the story, then Moses would have made it real clear for us, so don't get hung up on that. Let the text tell you what the text wants to tell you. Here's what the text is saying, is that it's God's prerogative. So that's what I want you to see. is in the story God is making an evaluation and a judgment. We are not given. God doesn't justify himself to us. And I believe that that tension is a part of what the writer wants us to feel. That tension. That God is acting... And when Cain looks at what God does, Cain sits in judgment of what God does, and his sense of anger is aroused because what God is doing is not in alignment with his desires. you got to see that. That's where Cain's anger comes from. He looks at the world and he looks at how God's governing the world. And what God's doing in the world doesn't match what Cain thinks God should do in the world. And so Cain is in opposition to God. He's sitting in judgment of God, and he's angry with God, and he's angry with his circumstances. And look at how God deals with him so mercifully in verse 6. He's like, why are you angry? And then there's this great image of sin is crouching, like the idea that you're getting ready to walk into a room and and there's a door, someone's behind the door, hiding behind the door, and you got to deal with that, otherwise they're going to jump on you and master you. And that's the position that a lot of men find themselves in. They're living and dealing with an anger that is ongoing because they look at the world and the world doesn't line up with the way that they think it should line up. And so they begin to take a posture of sitting in judgment of how things are going. And anger settles in with them. And their countenance is downfalling. They're dejected. They're frustrated. They're angry. And it puts them in a position where they're subject for all types of sin to take hold of them. Look at what happens with Cain. Skip down to verse 9. Cain has killed his brother Abel. God comes back to Cain in verse 9. And he says, Afterward, the Lord said to Cain, Where's your brother? Where's Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? Just feel the scorn, the cynicism. But the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you. No matter how hard you work, from now on, you will be a homeless wanderer. And then the story goes on. We won't read all the story. God puts a mark on Cain because Cain's afraid people are going to kill him, because people will see him and see his alienation. They'll come attack him. And then things just go from bad to worse generationally. So the story goes on and talks about how generationally anger grows in Cain's family until it comes to kind of a crescendo with one of Cain's descendants named Lamech who kills a couple of men and boasts about the fact that he is 11 times as evil and worthy of judgment as his great-great-great-grandfather Cain was. That kind of anger just takes root. That kind of opposition to God, that kind of arrogance of sitting in judgment of God, has this legacy of destruction that brings chaos with it. So that's the first angry man in his legacy. Here's the second one. And this is in Numbers chapter 25. And I'm going to read a little bit more of the story. I've got a couple of sections of the text there for you. But I'm going to read um, just from the text, and then we're going to dive into these two sections and uh, hopefully see some things that can apply in a different direction. So here's the second thing. Second angry man. Now, while the Israelites were camped at Acacia Grove, some of the men defiled themselves By having sexual relations with local Moabite women. This is a rated R story, I'm gonna tell you, it gets worse. These women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods, so the Israelites feasted with them and worshiped the gods of Moab. And in this way, Israel joined in the worship of Baal of Peor, causing the Lord's anger to blaze against his people. Now the Lord issued the following command to Moses: "Seize all the ringleaders and execute them before the Lord in broad daylight, so His fierce anger will turn away from the people of Israel." Now let's just stop right there. Here's what we need to see. This is what I want you to see. Anger is not a bad thing. There are times where anger is the appropriate response. God's people are being adulterous with Him, both literally in every way that they can be. They're living in sexual immorality, and that sexual immorality is leading them into idol worship, and God is angry. And so God is against them, and he's threatening judgment for them, and he's, he's laying all of that out. So just see it. Now look in verse 6. Just then one of the Israelite men brought a Midianite woman into his tent right before the eyes of Moses and all the people as everyone was weeping at the entrance of the tabernacle. Now, that's their version of the temple, so get the image. God's announced judgment. There's a plague that's striking. God's, they're being struck down by the anger of the Lord. God has told them how to deal with judgment. And while all of that's coming down, right in front of the tabernacle, one of these men of Israel brings a foreign woman and takes her into his tent to have sex with her. Now, when Phineas, son of Eliezer and grandson of Aaron the priest, saw this, he jumped up, he left the assembly, he took a spear, and he rushed after the man into his tent. Phineas thrust the spear all the way through the man's body and into the woman's stomach. So the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but not before twenty four thousand people had died. I told you the rated R story, right? So the man and the woman, they're in the tent having sex. Phineas comes in. He's as angry as God is. And he brings about, as a priest, he brings about judgment against this man and the woman. And God responds by turning his anger away from the nation of Israel. And then here's the the text that we have for you. Look in verse 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Phineas... This is God's commentary on what's happened. Phineas, the son of Eleazar and grandson of Aaron the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites by being as zealous among them as I was. So I stopped destroying all of Israel as I intended to do in my zealous anger. Now tell, now tell him, tell Phineas, that I am making my special covenant of peace with his descendants, a permanent right to the priesthood, and I give him and his descendants a permanent right to the priesthood. For in his zeal for me, his God, he purified the people of Israel, making them right with me. Now, you, you can't have as, as different an example. And this is, this is troubling for modern ears. Is it the thing that actually brings about the salvation of Israel that turns God's anger away? Is this man killing this man and this woman who were in the process being engaged in immorality but not just immorality and idolatry and the answer to that the man who actually is angry in the same way that God is angry God makes a special covenant of peace with him and there's an irony to the text to the man who behaves the way God feels and is angry the way God is angry he's actually in peace with God And his legacy is the opposite of Cain's. Cain's goes from bad to worse. But Phineas, his descendants, ran a permanent new special relationship with God because he was angry. And he's given the right to have one of his descendants always be a priest perpetually because he was angry. So see this, two angry men. And there are three things that they both have in common. There are three common characteristics that we could talk about. First of all, they look and they see the world is not right. The world is not the way it should be. The situation that I find myself in is not the way things are supposed to be. They both, the second thing they both have in common, is they both have a passionate response to that with a desire to fix what they perceive to be wrong. They're both passionate to fix what is wrong from their perspective. Both Cain and Phineas see things that way. They both see what's wrong, have an opinion about it. They both are passionate to fix it. And then they both take dramatic action in order to resolve the tension that they feel, in order to try to bring alignment with what they believe should be and what actually is. You see that? Both of those men do all three of those things. And so anger, there are some commonalities that are in both of those things. But one of those men, his anger leads to generational chaos and to opposition to what God is doing in the world. The other man, his anger leads to generational blessing, a covenant of peace, of flourishing with God. That God says, I'm going to bless you. You're going to not just have an absence of conflict, but but you're going to be fruitful and my blessing is going to rest on you. You're going to flourish because you were angry in the same way that I'm angry. Because you were angry and zealous for me. Two angry men, radically different results of their anger. What's the one big difference between the two of them? If you just think about the text. Cain is trying to get the world in alignment with whom? Himself, right? Right? So, Matt talked about the creator creature distinction a little bit when he's talking about pride and humility. And this is where we see where it really comes to fruition. Where Cain's standard is himself, Cain's standard is how he feels. Cain's standard, he recognizes himself as the center, and he's trying to get the world in alignment with him. He's trying to have the world work on his terms. Rather than coming underneath what God is doing and saying, I'm confused about this. I don't understand why God rejected my sacrifice. But he's God. I'm not God. I'm going to come under. I'm going to seek to get in alignment with him. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to wait on him to bring clarity to me. Cain doesn't do that. Cain tries to impose his will and bring alignment by imposing his will. Phineas, on the other hand, rather than living in fear of man and what's going on all around him and doing what everyone else is doing, Phineas is bold and takes up the cause of the Lord and he gets himself in alignment with how God feels, even though it would be really dangerous to do that, even though there'd be a lot of opposition to do that. Phineas is not about his agenda, he's about God's agenda. And so, that's how they're different. What are you trying to get things in line with? And I couldn't have gotten a better example of all of this than when I got um, this past Sunday night. And um, there are a couple of ways that we can mess it up, and I'll just give you a personal story for me. I mean, I, I have struggled with anger more this week than I remember struggling with anger in a long time. That's kind of the curse of being the preacher, right? So, But it's just kind of the way it's fallen out. And I had a sense of God's presence with me this past weekend, and just, I mean, really felt like a Christian. I don't always feel like a Christian, right? There are a lot of times I tell myself I'm a Christian, I read the scripture, I hope in Christ, but I don't always feel like it. I mean, I really felt like a Christian. I felt great, and felt like God was with me, and helped me while I was going through the weekend, and got through preaching my sermons, and finished up on Saturday, on Sunday night, and got home, got back to my house, and had a friend there. and We were going to Um, watch uh, playoff baseball together, one of my favorite things to do. And then um, my wife called me and said some people were coming over to our house to move some furniture that she had sold. And um, suddenly I thought of all the reasons why she was evil and inconsiderate. And she asked me if I would manage the dumb teenagers who were coming over to my house to move furniture for her. And I was like, hey, babe, this is your deal. This ain't really my deal. I've been preaching the word of the Lord I've been serving God's people. I'm tired. I'm watching baseball. i got a buddy over here. I'm not really into moving furniture. You can have all that when you get home. It went from bad to worse from there. Because what happened is my own sense of entitlement, my own sense of expectation around something really small, it turned into this huge conflagration. And what was just, you know, no evil on her part, Just not really thinking through a handful of things suddenly became this big sin against God and humanity and a failure of hers as a wife. And I mean, it went on and on and on. And it was on me before I knew anything about it. It seized me. And then I was trying to get it off of me. You ever get in that situation? Where then you know that the way you feel is wrong, but that passion has seized hold of you, right? And now you're trying to get it off of you trying to get away from it, and it wasn't easy to get away from. cost us that entire evening, the next morning, it was burdensome, just trying to work my way back through it. Now, let me tell you, there are a couple of ways that you can do great damage, and one of them is the way in which I just described, is that that kind of simple anger of Cain, where you sit in judgment of how the world is going, and in back of that, there is a sitting in judgment of the sovereign Lord, And this is what I would say, is that a lot of us, regardless of whether we're explosive in the moment or whether we're just simmering, we've got this kind of settled anger, this just low grade about some things that are going on in our life where we look at them and we think they're not right and we're sitting in judgment of God about all of those things. And it seized hold of us and we can't get it off of us and it's doing damage to us every day because we're like Cain and we're not letting God have his way. But then there are others of us And I think this is really important for us to make sure we get. Who are um, angry, who are not angry. And we're, we're doing damage because we're not angry. For every moment that someone was not angry about what God was angry about, there was destruction that was taking place in the nation of Israel in Numbers chapter 23. For every moment the people stood idly by and watched God's name be profaned and watched what God had said. God had told them clearly, this term of relationship, can't do this, can't live this way, can't be like this. For every moment the people stood idly by and let that happen, thousands of people were dying. There was destruction that was going on. And this is what I would say to you, is that there are plenty of men who are in our church who are angry on the one hand, About things that are not really important. That are just an infringement on how they think things ought to go. But then on things that are really important. The things that God cares about. They're not angry about them. And so we have men who have sons who are living in their homes. Who treat their wives with chronic disrespect. Who speak to her like she's a servant. Who take advantage of the woman who has laid down their life for her more than any other woman in the world, and they are not angry about it. And they allow their wife to be run down and exhausted and unprotected. And as a result of that, she turns into being nagging, and she gets frustrated, and then he stands apart from her with the children, and he throws her under the bus. He's like, well, I mean, you know how your mom is. And a lot of that is because he's not angry about what he should be angry about. Because he's not taking a stand against the injustices there. He doesn't see that kind of disrespect in this, because it's not getting on him, it's getting on her. He's not protective. He's not taking responsibility for that. He's being passive. He's allowing all that to happen. And here's what he's doing. He's condemning his son or he's condemning his daughter because he's allowing them to sin against God. And God is angry with that sin. And either God is going to discipline them and chastise them for that sin and bring them to repentance through hardship, or God is going to judge them for that sin because they never repent of it and it's not laid on Jesus, it's really on them. Either way, he's abandoning his child to the anger of God because he's not taking a stand in his home and representing the authority of God, and he's abandoning his wife. And either one of those will bring dramatic consequences into a man's life, and into the lives of those that God has entrusted to him. And so again, let's go back. It's not a question of whether or not we should be angry. It's a question of whether or not our anger is appropriate, whether our anger mirrors the anger of God, whether we're being men who take responsibility for being angry in the ways that God calls us to be angry. Let me give you four biblical texts that ought to give structure, boundaries, and direction to our anger. Here's the first one. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. You have it for you in your notes. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So this is our first text that helps us get a picture of kind of how anger ought to function. And there are a couple of things that we can say from this. First of all is that anger is not to be explosive, our anger. Okay, so man's anger should not be explosive. That's not the way it needs to work. It doesn't mean that you should never be angry. He says, be slow to get angry. I remember one time I was listening to the illustration earlier about the father and a son. My sons had to be, there was just a temptation. As they were coming into their oats, beginning to feel some of their power as a man, And my wife would begin to come underneath her as they would begin to assert themselves. And I watched them, and and sometimes it would dawn on me, this is what's happening. And when it would get clear in my head that my son was taking advantage of my wife, or he was pushing her around, usually I'd hear it come out of his mouth in some form of disrespect or some form of laziness that dumped on her. And there was a real temptation just to explode in the moment. And what the scriptures have made clear, and I did plenty of that. But what I had to learn is, it's not wrong for me to be angry in that. But what I have to do is, I cannot allow that anger to just be explosive. i got to be slow to get angry. It's got to be measured. It's got to be more of a settled opposition than just a hot flare that goes away. So this is the idea. You listen. You're slow to speak. You don't try to impose yourself on it. And you allow yourself to really understand the situation. You don't explode. And then if there needs to be some settled opposition, the settled opposition can come then. If there needs to be some action, some action can come then. But the idea here is that explosive kind of anger is not your go-to. That's not going to accomplish God's purposes. It might make you feel better in the moment and get something off of your chest, but it is not going to bring about the kind of righteous, directional leadership That God desires. It's not going to produce the results that God would want. So anger shouldn't be explosive in how it expresses itself in a Christian man, and it's not your go-to. It's not the engine that drives you to get things done. Here's a second text that gives us some direction. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26, and don't let, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. Now, here's here's one of the things that um, I think we got to make sure we get clear on. Um, That seething and explosive continuum. This is a text that really deals with this idea of seething anger. Because the people who usually struggle with seething anger are people who... Are quieter, not as prone to conflict. And so it's just easy for them to push it down, for them to kind of let it go, but not really let it go. It's not really worth it to really engage and talk about the issue, so I just kind of stuff it, I just kind of cram it back down. And that's the image of what's happening here. Don't let don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. So if you're a person who is prone to that kind of seething, simmering anger, then you have to understand that at the end of every day, you need to settle up accounts. You need to work your way through it. And if love can't really cover it, where you let it go? That's one thing. Love covers a multitude of sins, right? And that's the way it ought to be. It's not we're not just keeping score all the time. But if there's something that you cannot let go and it's stuck and the anger is there, then the idea is don't let the sun go down on it. Go resolve it. Go engage. Go love the person enough to engage them to work through it to keep short accounts. Because when you allow that, there's something spiritual that happens. And I think Paul probably has the image of Cain in his mind. It's like the devil crouching behind the door waiting to jump on you and just beat you to a pulp. Is that when you allow that anger to stay with you, there is something spiritual. There is a spiritual vulnerability that you create in yourself. And it gives a foothold to the devil where he can bring chaos into your life. And so there's got to be some self-awareness. So that anger doesn't begin to be just this low-grade driving engine that runs how we relate to one another, how we deal with each other. So an example of that would be the man whose sex life is not the way he thinks it should be with his spouse. And so he just gets to a point where he feels like he's tried to engage her around that issue. He doesn't feel like she's hurt. It's okay, just breathe. It's fine. And so... He doesn't feel like the progress is being made the way that it should be. So what happens to him is he begins to take up this offense and this anger takes root in his heart. And so he has kind of a settled opposition to her, a woundedness and a frustration that this is not the way that it should be. But he feels too vulnerable when he tries to engage on it because it makes him feel weak. It makes him feel embarrassed, the fact that he's got to talk about this. He's like, I'm not going to beg and grovel to get my wife to have sex with me the way she should have sex with me. And so he just kind of nurtures all of that because he's not willing to make himself vulnerable enough to really lead through that. That was one of the real turning points in my life when Matt Williams taught me that, that I had to be the sexual leader in my home. And so in his weakness and his vulnerability and his woundedness, This anger takes up, and what happens is the devil gains a foothold in his life, and he begins to feel entitled to some measure of sexual infidelity. Whether it's just gazing on another woman, whether it's escaping into pornographic um, material, pornographic websites, pocket porn on his phone, whatever it is. He makes allowance for masturbation in his life as a form of sexual escape. He's like, well, I mean, my wife's not providing for me. I'm so frustrated. How am I supposed to be able to go to sleep? So rather than resolving that conflict with her, it's just easier for him to just go take the edge off himself. And he doesn't feel great about it, but that actually feels a little bit less embarrassing than having to really engage her and lead her. And now the devil has a foothold. And it's an anger issue. Now, it becomes a sex issue, because then those patterns get worn deeply into his life, but at the root of that is a sense of entitlement. It's a sense of, I've been offended. It's a sense of, I've got a right to this. And rather than leading through it, he goes passive, and he just lets it see the devil gains a foothold, and now he's under the mastery of a sin of appetite. Happens all the time in our church. Happens all the time. All too often, we're dealing with it on the back end when the consequences are huge. But if we can recognize it for what it is, then we can deal with it on the front end. Here's the third thing. Psalm chapter 30, verse 4 and 5. This gives some direction to our anger. This is speaking about the Lord. Sing to the Lord, all you godly ones. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. Here's what I would say to you. Healthy anger... Resolves. Healthy anger finds resolution. It doesn't characterize your life. If there's an anger that you're carrying around for a sustained period of time, it's not from God. God's not angry. When we talk about God's angry with the wicked all day long, what we're talking about is God's settled opposition, but at the same time, He's causing the sun to rise and set, right? He's being kind. He's being good. And the idea here is in your relationship with God, God's not just constantly pounding you down. He's not constantly frustrated and beating you up. He may be angry with you over something, but it resolves, and His favor lasts a lifetime. What characterizes God is His grace. What characterizes God is His favor. That's what we're going to sing about in all eternity. And so here will be the question for you. It's for the people who are closest to you, what would they say characterizes you? There may be some relationships that you've lost with people. It would be bad to go ask them. Say, hey, what happened in our relationship? What characterizes, how would they characterize? Your anger. Does it, is it something that resolves in a healthy way and lasts a moment and then resolves into favor that lasts a lifetime? That's a model for us. It ought to give direction. If that's not happening with you, then something is not right. Somewhere, your anger is not right. You may not be able to see it clearly, but it's not right. And you got work to do on it. And then here's uh, the last text for us. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the Scriptures say... I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Now, this is a a really helpful promise. I I got John Piper helped me get really clear on this. He was a pastor for a long time. He wrote a book called Faith and Future Grace, where he has a chapter in there on how understanding this promise can free you from bitterness, which is that kind of seething anger and opposition that sets up in your heart and just really begins to wrap its way around your heart. Because here's the thing. For some of you, I mean, some of us, most of what we're dealing with is just managing temper, managing our expectations, and all of that. But then if you live long enough, people are going to give you some real offenses. There there are people who, if you say their name, like my right eye twitches. It just kind of flutters, and I, it's involuntary. I can't really take my twitch. They're, There are people whose names can be spoken in a meeting or somewhere, and like I have to get up and walk around a little bit. Because there are wounds and offenses that have been given that have marked me, where there are scars that are really significant. Some of them, those wounds aren't completely healed yet, right? There's a sense of, Justice and angry betrayal, and I'm looking at it, and I look at some of the psalms that talk about people sin with impunity, or they, they get away with everything, and the people who are trying to do the right thing, they suffer. And you've got a settled kind of anger about all of that. How is it that you cannot give in to that anger and let it go? Well, that's what this text is talking about. We can be free to not take revenge. And the idea here is that within a relationship, you gotta punish somebody to pay them, to get them, to make them pay. So your friend sins against you when your kid sins against you. How do you respond to that? How do you find freedom just to completely let that go? Here's what the text says leave that to the righteous anger of God. That's God's deal. It becomes a faith issue. Can I trust God that he's going to do what's right with this offense that has been put on me? That's not always a real simple thing. Our church is full of men who've been sexually abused. Our church is full of men who've been abandoned by their fathers. Our church is full of men who've been abused by their fathers, who've been beaten down whose mothers have wounded them severely, whose wives have left them and have sinned against them. That's just that's part of the world that we're living in, where there are real offenses that have been given. How is it that God can free us from that? That's what this text is saying. This text is saying that revenge, vengeance is mine. God says, I am going to deal with that. Will you trust me with that? Will you put that in my hands? And this is what I would say to you. The reason why we can trust God with all of that is because we've seen the full measure of his love through the man Jesus for us. We've seen how committed God is to blessing us through Jesus, who grew a body so that he could use in that body, absorb the wrath of God against all of our sin so that we could be free. That's why I would say you can trust him. And that's the only way that ultimately we're going to get free. Is the only way that a man who's prone towards explosion and prone towards seething is ever going to really be able to let it go and let that anger resolve so that he can live a life of giving favor to other people as if at the end of the day, it's not that if he just says none of these offenses really matter because they do matter. They're real sins. They're real offenses. But it's not our job to deal with it. It's God's job to deal with it. and We can trust him because we see how he deals with sin through Jesus on the cross. Are we going to go to our groups and discuss some of this? We've got some questions for you. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, I pray that you would dismiss these men with your presence, that you would open up a pathway for real fellowship, for communion with them. I pray you'd help us to find ourselves and where we struggle. And help us to find our hope. Um, not in getting things in alignment with what we think they should be, but in trusting that you are ultimately going to bring all things in alignment with exactly how they should be, according to your righteous character. And Lord, for men who have suffered real offenses and who are devastated and wounded by those things, I pray that you would help us to be a community of brothers who can come around one another, And help each other find faith to lay down our own need for vengeance. Because we trust you that you'll handle it. And we trust that you love us and so we can commit ourselves and find freedom in Christ, the righteous judge. We pray in his name. Amen.